This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thank you very much, Marjusar. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pitching this around my experience as a Buddhist chaplain in a non-Buddhist setting. And I did a talk very, very similar to this in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago that was tilted around Maitri or Metta, meaning and friendship in chaplaincy. And I think the two can, can go together. So my approach will be to offer a few snapshots and some reflection. And if there's time, I'll be open to questions at the end. I'll talk about a couple of patients, and of course I've changed their name in case it fills you with horror that I'm breaking confidentiality. Nick was 27 when I first saw him in February 2015. He was in for some treatment for a primary cancer. He looked quite a good specimen of a young man, well-muscled and with a positive mental attitude. He was adamant he could beat this. Five months or so later, he was back on the ward because he'd been having some seizures. Over the course of the next few weeks, it was established that he had three sizable tumours on his brain, secondaries. Not back for sure, he was still confident he'd pull through. A couple of weeks later, I was told by the Catholic chaplain, Father Charles, that he'd been looking for me the day before, which was a Sunday, and had been quite distressed. So I went to see him on the ward and found him hunkered down underneath bed then, shuddering as he sobbed. When I said who it was, he unwound himself from the sheets and continued to sob, saying between the sobs that he had no hope. He had nothing left. He needed a brain up urgently, in fact, that very day, which if he didn't have, they told him he would be lucky to last three months. If he did choose to have the up, it might give him a couple of years. But then if it didn't work, the prognosis of the shorter term remained the same. I just didn't know what to say, but felt that I had to. In fact, I wanted to stay with him. Though he knew I was a Buddhist, he certainly was not. I was merely present with him. He told me through tears that he'd looked for me the day before, but remembered I was in on Monday. So he'd availed himself of our quiet room. In it, he said he took down one book, one book alone, from the bookshelf, and that book spoke to him, and it was the Dhammapada which I'd put there a few months before. He said it spoke to him. What in particular, I asked, spoke to, to, spoke to him? Everything, he said, but especially something about spiritual worth being greater than material worth. I can't quite remember what exactly. He said he didn't need to look at any other book and that it all made sense. I had the distinct impression he had seen something on quite a deep level. For, from that it seemed trite, yet still appropriate 
to suggest that indeed he had stumbled upon hope. So, I was ordained in 2010 by Vajra Gupta and Padmavadra, and I do spend my time between Birmingham and Paris, involved in both of those sanghas. And when I'm in Birmingham, I um, practice as a Buddhist chaplain at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. So, chaplaincy is the context for tonight's talk, and I've been at the QE uh, for nearly four years now, and having been the, the, the Buddhist chaplain uh, for the last 20 months or so, I started as a volunteer. I'm still unpaid, but I started as a volunteer, and uh, anybody interested in doing such should um, make themselves available at the hospital. We see about, as a hospital, 700,000 patients a year that come through the doors. Then there's their relatives, visitors, and all the staff. And I work in an interfaith context, Christian, within that Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, and other. Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, and with Jewish and Baha'i on hand. And... I'm most fortunate, really. We all are in this context. In the mutual support and respect we all demonstrate for one another, and above all, the curiosity that we have for one another's faith. And I think this is the most important quality for chaplaincy and friendship, one which we get to practice, actually, both our meditations, being curious about the breath, and being curious about the neutral person in the Metabhavna. Because if you think about it, most, if not all, of our friends were once neutrals. So I'm indeed blessed at the QE to have this interfaith support built on curiosity. My specific mentor is an Anglican, and I'm constantly learning from him even though apparently people have told me he says the same of me. That's the sort of bloke he is. But the demographic of the hospital and city and region is such, despite this multi-faith um, aspect um, with, and the huge footfall of patients, staff and visitors, there aren't that many that are Buddhist. I suspect there are more than I get to see, but the clocking in system isn't perfect. Would you click tick Zen if you were Theravadan? And patients don't always get asked about religion or spiritual orientation. They should do, but in certain cases when they come in quickly, it's not a question that comes up. And we have had this where you've stumbled across a Buddhist and say, why didn't you say you were a Buddhist? Well, it just had Zen, and I'm not a Zen. Oh, okay. So anyway... This means two things for my contact with patients. One is that I visit every patient who has been clocked in as a Buddhist, no matter what their tradition. And in three and a half years, I've not had that many. I think there were just four Sri Ratna people I can think of. One was an order member I knew was already in. Somebody I hadn't previously met, but just started to come to the centre, an order member told me about. Somebody else I've been alerted to via an order member. And I stumbled across one Sangha member on my rounds. Otherwise, in the main, the Buddhists um, are Chinese or Vietnamese, mainly Chinese with limited English and who want chanting 
or the relatives of wanted chanting just prior and just after death. And I've noticed that our refuges and precepts are shared with Sri Lankan Buddhists, that's Theravada, I think, and even had the same tune, which is rather nice to chant together. And I've had with one patient um, really good conversations. They weren't just badged Buddhists. They obviously, I went in the first time and the person was listening to some sutta. Oh, hello, yeah, and we had a great conversation from that. But mainly, you know, the demographic means that I visit patients who are not Buddhist. They could be lapsed Catholics or Anglicans or profess no faith at all. And the lapsed groups still have quite often a classic notion of a Christian God and may even pray regularly. They don't go to church because physically they can't or because somewhere along the line they feel they've been let down by the church or by God, particularly by God in terms of perhaps their own terminal illness or a previous significant loss in their lives. And there's often with that quite a sense of unfairness of being dealt a duff hand when they haven't indulged in the usual vices. I haven't drunk, I haven't smoked, I've been faithful all my life, I've tried to be good, etc. Why has this happened to me? But what all these people have in common, I think we all do, not just patients, is a quest for a sense of meaning. Has their life made a difference? What really does hold meaning for them, which makes life worthwhile, or which gives them purpose? Even where they accept their condition and the inevitable and approaching end, what is it they feel most attached to? Existential questions which besiege us all, whatever our religion or lack of one. And I should emphasize at this point that though not exclusively, I do mainly specialize in oncology with patients who are receiving palliative care, who have just been given a challenging diagnosis or difficult prognosis. Such life predicaments can often form the basis of deep soul searching along the lines of looking for meaning. And I also regularly visit a respiratory ward because I have a degenerative lung condition. And what's fascinating uh, is uh, largely these patients, and I would include myself, have until our ultimate sort of demise, if it is that way that we die, because we have a long tail to our illness as our symptoms worsen. And so sometimes the patients come into hospital quite ill, pneumonia or something, and then they get better and well enough to go home. And I have to admit that I find it harder to go deeper with such patients because they're either not so sharply reminded or avoiding hints, however strong, of their own mortality. It's as if they show me fewer doors to gently push at, and the ones they do present me with do seem to be firmly locked. That's not exclusively the case on that ward, but it's something I've noticed. So the exchange goes, oh, I see you're on that medication. How are you going on with that? Have you tried this? Oh, no. So, oh, yes, yes, I get it then too. And you think, okay, we can go a little bit deeper here, but no, it gets pushed up, hijacked around to another direction. But I think in oncology, people are much more prepared to talk about what it means to be life-limited. 
So that's the broad context of what I do and tonight's theme. And I'd like to sort of consider, so a Buddhist in a non-Buddhist context, what is it that we bring? I want to consider Maitri or Metta, along with friendship in this context. And I'm referring to Maitri or Metta and friendship as Buddhist practices, especially with regard to the Sangha jewel in reality. All three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, will be present, but there's an emphasis on the Sangha jewel where Maitri and friendship in this setting are concerned. Of course, we don't proselytize. As chaplains, we don't proselytize. And as Buddhists, we don't proselytize. We have Buddhist centers like this one here, and as far as possible, wide open doors through which we welcome all and any who are interested to hear the Dharma. And of course, we offer the teaching of meditation to those who are interested. As Buddhists, we follow a path. We don't have a monopoly on understanding suffering, but we do have a few fundamental things to share with anyone who's interested. And I don't mean interested in becoming a Buddhist, but interested in understanding suffering, its causes, its possible cessation, and what can lead uh, to its cessation and support that. Pain is inevitable, but suffering isn't in the sense of what the Buddha referred to as the second dart. The second dart is the one that we give ourselves. We get, we, we feel a pain, oh, what's this? I must have cancer. Oh dear, this is, you Google it and like, you say you're suffering the pain and then you're giving yourself these extra layers by what you think it is and you've got no idea what it is anyway. And I was interested to see, I've just recently become a grandparent to twins and that's been fascinating. And I was there when they had their first jabs uh, after five weeks. And of course, they've got no idea what's going on. So when a needle is produced, that means nothing to them. And they had a needle in each of their legs. And my goodness, did they yell. <laughs> Absolutely yelled the place down and then stopped. And then when it came to the second leg, out over comes it, still no reaction to the needle, and then, and then stopped. And then afterwards they're fine. So what they don't have, in the needle, only the needle, to quote from the sutta, really, in the jab, only the dab, they experience pain, but not suffering. And so what they didn't let in is that uh, proliferation of thought that I mentioned, like, oh, this, you know, this isn't right. It's just indigestion. No, it's more serious than that. Can you feel it? I've got a swelling here. That kind of thing. In, in Buddhism, we call that prapancha. That tendency to proliferate and throw a story on something and dr dramatize it, etc. And pull it completely away from what it actually is. So, thinking about proselytizing and taking care to avoid any misunderstandings around that, Reminds me of um, early days for me when a patient, let's call him Graham, turned up one day to my lunchtime meditation session. He'd heard about the class, and although that day he was an outpatient, he wondered, oh, could I, could I still join you? I'm a complete beginner. He seemed very keen. And even as somebody off the street, I'd have still welcomed him in. He said he had a heart condition and a cancer with secondaries. And I could sense from him to come and ask and then to do such a thing as meditation would have been, prior to his illnesses, something way outside his comfort zone. 
but he was prepared to give anything a go in search of relief. He knew he was terminal and it couldn't be reversed, but he was also looking for meaning as well as relief. He was after sense. He sat next to me and we did the mindfulness of breathing. And at the end of the session, he had a trickle of tears running down his face. And I said, you're okay. He said, I've never felt anything like that before. And that's the most peaceful I've been for some months. Where, where could I go to get some more outside the hospital? Tell me where we lived. And it was as plain as this nose on my face, which is quite significant if you're listening on the tape, that it had to be here. Geographically, it had to be here. Though I do know the community of interbeing also meeting mostly. So I just ran along the corridor to see my boss, Richard, who's a, uh, an Anglican reverend. I said, he's asking me where to go. And it has to be, I don't want to proselytise. He said, you're not proselytising. He's asked you. Tell him to go to the Buddhist centre. <laughs> so I rushed back and gave Graham our details. And um, he's somebody who came here for a good while till failing health prevented him. And what's more, a genuine friendship has grown between us. He still tells me from time to time he's not a Buddhist. But I just joke with him saying, you're just being semantic. <laughs> so Maitri or Metta is actually the only open-hearted response to another's existence. It forms the bridge connecting two people. I say two people because I'm talking in a chaplaincy setting, which is mainly about the intimate and open connection between two people. But here I want to broaden out meta to the other adjacent, what we call heavenly abodes, the Brahma Viharas. Out of meta grows karana, which is compassion, which is a more precise response to suffering. And I did for quite a while uh, in my work as a chaplain see karana, especially in terms of palliative patients, as the one and only response to people who are dying. Then a Buddhist colleague of mine and fellow chaplain at that time showed me by example that mudita, another Brahmaviyala, which is empathetic joy, was also possible. And it's not either or all, or is karana exclusive, to um, Mudita or Mudita to Karana. So the two can be present together. Maybe, say, on trauma wards, and people in trauma wards, people could come with complex and compromising conditions, go on to overcome them, and walk out of the hospital to resume their lives. And this seemed to me the most appropriate occasion for Mudita. But what my colleague showed me, however, was that Mudita, like hope, could be present in the tiniest of gains, such as finally arriving at the correct pain control balance for a patient, or a patient being able to go home for a night or a weekend. Yes! Not like, well, that ain't going to do you very much good, is it? You know, <laughs> internal dialogue to self. It was like opening up. What about the present moment that we talk so much about? Yeah, that is, and you can feel that sense of joy that they have of making that, what in other terms, even to them previously, would have been a small amount of progress. When you enter a patient's space and, space and say, hello, I'm Elizabeth, especially with what's a funny name to them, I'm a Buddhist, 
You are both laying yourself bare as well as declaring yourself available for whatever it is they want to share with you at the outset. And at the outset, they might not be aware of what it is they do want to share. And in terms of metta or maitri, you're just extending the hand of friendship, which is a kind of spiritual friendship. If they take it, and I'd say mostly they do, then you're in a relationship which can quickly become transparent, intimate and meaningful, whereby they can offload their fears, worries, questions and searchings. But be warned, this might turn out to be a heavy load for you to bear, to witness another's pain and suffering. And you'll need your own coping measures, strategies and support. Of course, you have to do it without preference or judgment. And I like to walk through the ward before I start, looking quickly into each bed section and observing my own reactions accumulated over lifetimes of judging what I think people will be like and how they will be along the lines of like, don't like, neutral, might be dipping good. Oh, they look nice and approachable. But what I love most is seeing my preferences being proved to be misguided and rash and just plain wrong as I practice physical metabolism and allow myself to be open equally to all and discover just how wrong and misleading these prejudice, prejudices and predictions can be. And the prejudices and preferences dissolve on contact and on fast-growing familiarity. And it constantly surprises me how you can walk into the space of a total stranger and within minutes fall through a trapdoor of intimacy together. And sometimes patients will tell you that they've shared or revealed more to you in 50 minutes than they have with a partner or close family member. The proffered hand of friendship from a stranger, once taken up, affords an anonymity which makes intimacy somehow safer. What's more, through your presence you can be a mirror to their innermost thoughts and feelings. Our Dharma practice informs every interaction, and yet it doesn't have to be explicit. Sometimes, though, it's invited, like when a patient says, well, actually, I'm a committed Christian, but tell me, why don't you lot believe in a creator God? And sometimes this can come when you least expect it, but it's always welcome because it affords the opportunity to get close to someone. And I think getting close to someone really sums up what it's all about for me. There are occasions when I'm with someone, listening to them, looking into their eyes, but there are also thoughts about what train I'll be getting later or what I'm going to have for lunch. But there are other times where I can actually feel at one with the other person. I am aware that they have the condition, and as far as I know, I don't. But I feel we are joined, joined in a common enterprise where it no longer makes sense to conceptualize in terms of the duality of self and other. It's as if we've melded together, not just us two exclusively, but that's where it's experienced most acutely. And it's not that 
it's not about it not happening to me and it's happening to her. It's more a question that it's happening to an organ or in bones that's in a shared part of us somehow. And maybe consciousness is a bit like that. What is my consciousness as opposed to consciousness as such? I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to put it out there. And it's something I keep coming back to, and I think we should keep coming back to. We do it to some extent in one of the meditations of the six element practice. <clears throat> there was one terminally ill patient I built up a good, regular relationship with, who said that she'd meditated for years but wasn't a Buddhist. In her terminal illness, she'd become more Buddhist curious. With understandable difficulty, she'd slowly come round to accepting her fate, but found it unbearable when she closed her eyes and imagined her two daughters crying at her graveside. This attachment was made all the more difficult, where one of the daughters had pleaded at her bedside not to die. And this made me think of the Sutta of Kisagotami and the mustard seed. It's the sutta where Kisagotami has just lost her child and she takes the lifeless body in her arms in the desperate hope that the Buddha would revive it, could revive it. And he tells her to go and get mustard seed from a household where nobody had ever died. You could imagine what happened there. They had mustard seed. A few weeks later, when I was with this same patient, she was preparing to go to a hospice, something which she never wanted to do before, because that would have meant she'd have to really acknowledge that she was dying. So this was progress. We talked some, and though it was weighty, somehow it was held lightly by both of us. And before I left, I saw that her tea had gone cold, so I offered and made her a fresh cup. When I brought it back to her, I said, is there anything else I can get you? I was thinking like a biscuit or going down to get a sandwich. And she took hold of both of my hands and pinned me with her eyes and calmly said, can you make all this go away, please? I certainly wasn't expecting that. And all I could say was, we both know that's not possible, don't we? And she nodded. She nodded in assent. Sometimes silence is a perfectly valid response, and maybe even the only appropriate one. So sitting together in a shared silence, bearing witness, being present is all that's needed. Besides, often we are in wordless spaces or spaces too vast for mere words. The Dharma helps and underpins every action, reaction and interaction mindfulness. I don't want to get into the whole mindfulness-based scone-baking or spin-bowling debate, but just what we practice here in True Ratna, mindfulness, be present in the present. It's a wonderful tool for being with someone. It's also a tool you can make available to Buddhist and non-Buddhist alike. And moving away from oncology for a moment, with a Buddhist physician colleague specialising in a, a particular branch of medicine, we've been um, 
we've had some ex- very encouraging results in managing pain and some uh, sometimes actually relieving pain, long-term pain sufferers with uh, with um, long-term illnesses. We've brought meditation to it. Um, and the consultant friend says that the mindful session, mindfulness sessions have had superior outcomes to any medical ones in long-term patient care in this case. And this has been written up in the clinical notes and his colleagues are on board with it as well. And in a way, this is very much Breathworks territory and partly how it came about. But that Breathworks story uh, merits more time and consideration than I'm able to give it now. And it certainly helped this consultant friend who's a committed Buddhist because that's what initially flung the doors wide open in having a different kind of access to the patient. In fact, my boss was really pleased about this, wanted to do some research, wanted us to talk in public about it, write it up, and we both said no, no, because it's great that he does what he does, but having a some idea what the NHS would do with it, they would see it as, you know, evidence-based outcome, and the, what Chaplin's is doing, particularly the Buddhist, uh, is relieving people's pain. And really, we wanted to say, well, it's everything else we do that's important that we can't measure. It is these sort of converse, what we call significant conversations that how would you measure them? How could you bring a tool to measure them? So we did not want to be reduced to just delivering um, pain uh, control in some way. Mindfulness, it's now, it's now, that's all that any of us have got, whether we're terminally ill or apparently in rude health. The now, the present moment, and that's one of the most wonderful gifts or tools that's Buddhist that we can offer patients who aren't Buddhist. And silence, (coughs) and we Buddhists are comfortable with silence and value it. And if you've been on retreat, no doubt you've encountered periods of silence. And isn't it remarkable how you can get to feel a sense and have a sense of another person in a wordless state? And this relates to the point about being present with someone, bearing witness and holding that presence with your own, the meeting of presences in the present. And certainly we're not there to give solutions. It's much more about how we carry our burdens than what those burdens actually are. I mentioned Maitri or Metta and the other heavenly abodes of Karana and Mudita and finding Mudita in Karana. But there's also Upeksha, Upeksha, the equanimity of acceptance and being at one with things as they really are and not being bound up with notions of unfairness. Why me? I've got a friend who comes to the centre, another order member that was diagnosed with cancer some years ago, and his reaction was, why not me? And things not turning out as we would have wished them. Isn't that the Dharma? Isn't that what the Dharma teaches us? But equanimity is not a cold-hearted state because there's a presence of metta and karana. We don't at all have to switch people onto Buddhism who haven't asked and even those who have asked have to find their own switches. The important thing is to approach people in the context of the Four Noble Truths. 
which lends both solidity as well as perspective, anchoring us in the Dharma and the pursuit of the Noble Eightfold Path, practicing ethics, medication and wisdom. But we don't have to do this alone. As the Buddha said to Ananda, correcting the latter's view that spiritual friendship is half of the spiritual life, and it's Ananda who's with the Buddha painted behind me here. Say not so, Ananda, say not so. Spiritual friendship is the whole of the spiritual life. And that's something that we in Sri Ratna lay great emphasis, great emphasis on. A year or so ago, Bhante Sangharachita commented to Paramartha, his main carer and one of my closest friends, people don't realize how radical our practice of Sangha is. Sangha, the community of those who tread the Buddhist path, is therefore an incredibly important dimension to carrying any weight that any such pastoral encounters involve. Spiritual friendship is at the heart of the Sangha, and it's the very touchstone of my chaplaincy as a model for interaction and support. Sharing whilst maintaining confidentiality, of course. All three jewels, in fact, sustain us as they perfume our lives, reminding us of the impermanence of all other refuges. If Sangha supports and exudes the benefits of spiritual friendship, Dharma reveals the truth and shows us things as they really are. And whilst the Buddha, for me, holds it all together, and in particular in the form of the Blue Buddha, Akshobhya, the mirror-like wisdom of Akshobhya. And I'll stop there and take questions. Thank you very much, Master. <coughs> I am a little bit delighted. There's something about um, how articulate you are and the heart and the groundedness of it, which is is um yeah an amazing combination thank you so um any questions you want to ask it's quite a, a thing isn't it that kind of switch from the listening to the song yeah. oh, but let's kind of get into what did you mean by the, the other thing i just want to add yeah. is that i'm making a lot of assumptions here about you as an audience and um, if any of you are going through a difficult period or you have somebody close to you that is and this has touched something for you or in you, please feel you can approach me if you would like to do so. Give me your name and number at the end and I'll happily uh, meet up with you. What do you find is your... Best coping mechanism to deal with really difficult situations like the ones you talked about. It's a really good question, and I think it fluctuates. Um, I think mostly my immediate res response is, "This is too heavy. I want to share it," and so I will seek out my mentor. Mm -hmm. probably at the end of the shift but if necessary straight away um, and I think just going back to Dharma reflecting the Dharma about impermanence about the presence and about 
things turning out not as we'd want them and, you know, projecting out, why me, why does this happen? Part of me thinks I'm amazed that more things don't go wrong more of the time for all of us. You know, with complex mechanisms, aren't we? That doesn't really help. That's not something that helps, but it gives me perspective. And another coping mechanism is quite simple, is um, I, I, I go and have a quiet moment. I can't go from that patient and you go, morning, how are you? Yeah, I, you know, I have to make a break and I'll probably sit with my eyes closed in a quiet room. And sometimes um, I can feel uh, a wave of emotion coming over me. And sometimes what I find, where I find I need the coping mechanism most is in the dosage. It's almost like I can take this, this and this, but oh, that as well, you know, and then I have to reconnect with the Dharma. It's like, you know, I had a one particular day which included a friend of mine and um, on the way home I heard about another friend who was quite elderly and went to see them that day and I just thought, that's too much, that's too much. But you can't dose suffering. And just reconnecting with the Dharma um, helped that, seeing things as they really are. And I think, for me, so sharing it, particularly... Well, professionally with my mentor, and sometimes without naming names, I might take it to my chapter. Uh, uh, close spiritual friends saying, I find this burden really, really, really difficult. But otherwise, when I say Akshobia, I mean really connecting with Akshobia. You know, big, big inspiration. Blue sky, that mirror-like thing. Well, that's what it is, sweetheart. It is like that. They're there, you know. Yeah. But I think you we all need a coping mechanism. And I think, I'm trying to get it at the hospital, that you don't just do a shift, even as a volunteer. You have to download at the end like Samaritans do. I, I, it's just wrong to try and keep it in. Especially, you know, it could be over a few weeks. Yeah. And sometimes you get space. It's not that you don't cope, but it's hit you hard. It, poof, you've taken a big tackle, as it were, and all the wind goes out of you. I just say, um, I'm quite new to this, and um, like all the stuff you said there, the Dharma, I'm not familiar with it all, so uh, like how you articulate it all. I, I struggle to sort of. Well, I think med- meditation can be a kind of working ground for processing things, like the Dharma. And like, it, in a way, you're not required in your contact with the Dharma and it working through you to re-articulate it, to, you know, to put it into words. In fact, probably, it's something that you um, more likely to have effect if you feel it in the core of your being and connect with it. And my, my, my brother here, Vipla Kurti, would be able to say a lot more about that in terms of meditation and connecting with your feelings and what's going on. So I wouldn't worry too much about the 
intellectual space or challenge. But what do the points of the Dharma, you don't have to read it all, but, you know, like little, little bits of the Dharma, what, what, what's speaking to you or what's challenging you? And work on that for a while, work that through with your meditation. It's not necessarily that you would, um, you know, come through to a given solution, but you might uh, find ways, like I said earlier, about carrying things, carrying difficulties and challenges, and being more comfortable with uncertainty. You, you seem to also very clearly use the engagement you have there as a tool to reflect and understand your own responses to, in this case, uh, illness and suffering of that particular kind. Yeah. But I also know that what you do pretty, what you did previously, you did engage in the same manner to reflect with how you engage with it and bring about um, dharmic reflections. But I think that that is also something to really bring your life and your own experience in contact with whatever you are doing in a real reflective manner. That's what you do and I think that's a tool. Or that's what the Dharma has to become. That's what the Buddhist teachings have to become to take them on. Otherwise it's just sometimes just a book. But it's yeah. close to our hope and that doesn't make any difference unless you probably you do that, don't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that Answers that further, really. What prompted you to start doing? Pardon? Ah, um, I found myself at the QE with my mom, who was going to have a scan, and she wasn't very ill at the time. She was just ill, if you know what I mean. There was no, um, and I, I thought, what am I going to do for three quarters of an hour, an hour, and whatnot? I'm sure I've meditated yet. I'm sure there must be a chaplaincy here. So I found the chaplaincy, sat in the chapel, meditated, and walked out. And the office door was open. I walked in, and out of my mouth I heard the words, what do you have to do to be a chaplain here? <laughs> <laughs> hello. Uh, hello. And it, it just was that. Um, and the night before, okay, so now, that's it. But I, I felt that it's something that... I could bring to it because I'd had, I mean, I have had a contact in my personal life with, a, with death, a lot of death over my lifetime, um, to various degrees of knowing people and illness and taking people for treatment. And, and uh, it's not that I was, this is great. I was very comfortable around it, really. And also with that and you know, what we learn uh, as Buddhists and what we take into our heart as Buddhists, I thought, surely something here that I could put together and make a, make some sort of contribution, gesture. So it's really that. <clears throat> Somebody asked me, um, uh, you know, about the comic and the Yeah. And they said, like, uh, what next? <laughs> 
Well, I cannot possibly answer that. So I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not going to say to them, well, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to see these lights in this order. And um, probably 49 days, I think. Um, no, normally 49 days is that period until you, new consciousness classically. I really don't know. And I always go back and I can't tell you what's going to happen next. But I would like to somehow be reassuring that their dying is just as natural as them becoming into this world, being born. And their dying is just as natural as their life. And that it's, that it's, it certainly is the end of something. We don't know what happens next. And with that uncertainty of not knowing what happens next, to not feel so scared by it, perhaps. Um, and it depends if somebody has faith, whatever faith. Um, and some people have strong non-faith, but they're very comfortable about it. Oh, no, 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 I don't believe in anything. That's it. You die, you die. I'm worried by that. But mostly people who say that even say, I'm worried about the process of dying. So some people are worried about death and what happens after death. And some people uh, are worried about how, you know, dying. And that's where they possibly need, you know, reassurance about medically being able to have pain relief from that. It's a really, really good question. And if a Buddhist asks that question of a Tibetan background, they probably have some idea of what the kind of response they want from me. So if I had such a patient, I'd probably be looking back at Champagne Hooker's brilliant book. I have a reading list here. You know, yeah. Um, Chris, was you going Universities, so uh, I went to see uh, one of the people practicing before. Uh, I'm basically to discuss with him about like uh, there being more facilities and things for people from different traditions. Yeah. So like, I was just wanted to ask him, like, obviously, we're not patients from different traditions. Yeah. So, I mean, is there anything? Because I know that you don't get a lot working on Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's a good question because I, I don't have an intimate knowledge of that many traditions. Um, but I think we, we could do with a resource pack of some sort. I remember there was a, a wonderful woman and I know she wouldn't mind me saying, you know, uh, about her. Um, I'm going to name her because she was quite special. Um, Elizabeth Burridge. And she died uh, at the end of uh, 2015. And she had been a chaplain at the women's hospital. And I first knew her in that role. And then I got to know her as a patient. And we developed a deep friendship. She practiced in a Tibetan tradition. And she used to say to me, stay with me while I do my practice. And we used to start meditate together. Then she'd start chanting. And then she'd start vocalizing a visualization. I thought this was fantastic. Because it was not, you know, part and parcel of what I had to offer. But I'd like to know what it is I could offer yeah. uh, other traditions. And I think it would be possibly made possible by, um, you know, meeting people from those traditions. But that's actually harder than you think. It's actually harder than you think. Okay. Um, so we've come to the end. I've been um, feeling it sort of feels like the kind of talk where, like, 
applause just doesn't seem to be the right thing to do. And yet, I just really want to um, thank you, Mahasiddhi, on, on behalf of all of us, really, um, for yeah, a very tender, intimate, deeply... Yeah, sort of like um, reality touching talk. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 